probably gathered by now, I currently live in Beirut, Lebanon. For those of you not familiar with Lebanon, it is located on the Mediterranean Sea, just uh, west of Syria, north of Israel. So uh, clearly a very stable part of the world. Uh, I moved there last August as a, a short-term missionary through the Virginia Baptist, the BJV, uh, and I work with a local nonprofit called the Lebanese Society for Educational and Social Development. It is an umbrella organization that houses six sub-ministries that work in, in unique but collaborative ways to, to serve the community and to equip the local church. When I was in the first stages of deciding to move to Lebanon, I assumed I would be working with their refugee arm. That's one of their largest ministries, uh, and rightly so, given the fact that one in four people in Lebanon is a refugee. They have the highest number of refugees per capita of any country in the world. Uh, so I assumed I would be working with that ministry, but little did I or any of the people in Lebanon know uh, what the whole country would face in the following year and a half. So in start, starting in October 2019, there were signs uh, of looming economic collapse. And unfortunately, people's fears were realized a few months later when the economy finally did collapse. Just to give you some reference, uh, in the past 18 months, the local currency has lost 95% of its value. And not only is the currency losing its value, but food and, and beverage prices are skyrocketing. In the same period of time, they rose 670% on average. As you can imagine, this has had a devastating impact on people. In, in 18 months, poverty rates have doubled to over 55% of the population. For refugees who are already the most vulnerable in the country, their extreme poverty rate is now 90%. 90% in the country. And then as if that was not enough, last August you may have heard of the massive explosion where 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate exploded in the Beirut port, killing over 200 people, injuring over 7,000, destroying homes, businesses, schools, and hospitals. Today in Lebanon, the majority of the population only has a few hours of electricity a day. There are food, water, and fuel shortages. And throughout the country, now half the population, over half the population is unemployed, and little hope remains. In their anger and despair and hopelessness, a common question has emerged in Lebanon. Where is God? And you see, this isn't a new question. It's a question that has been asked since the beginning of time. Maybe it's even a question you're asking yourself today. But, praise God, he, he has an answer for us. Uh, throughout Scripture, we see God answering this question. We see, as one theologian put it, the story of Scripture is the story of God's relational presence with us. And as many of us know, the story begins in Eden. In Eden, uh, God walked with Adam and Eve, as scripture says, in the cool of the day. So it is a place of unity between God and humans, God and humanity, where people had a very direct and personal relationship with God, the creator. But as we also know, things changed. When Adam and Eve chose to disobey, sin created this chasm between humanity and God. People could no longer walk directly in his presence. 
uh, the close and personal relationship we had with God was fundamentally altered. And there the question was born, where is God? Now, as scripture goes on to show, God was still with his people, but not quite fully in their midst. Yet God repeatedly kept showing up in this story. We see this in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We see this in, with Sarah and Hagar, that God repeatedly shows himself to the people. And when he encounters them, he gives them these promises. I am with you. I will be with you. As he called each of these people forward, he, he promised that his presence would be with them and their ancestors. Yet, as we move from Genesis to Exodus, uh, we see the Israelites fall into slavery. And again, with a suffering that arises, the question comes out, where is God? Yet, despite his seeming silence uh, during their captivity, through Moses and the Exodus, we see that God had, in fact, seen and heard the people, and that he cared enough to act. And you see, after God liberates them from slavery, God calls Moses uh, to Mount Sinai and sets up a covenant. You see, in these days, the covenant was an official agreement contract between two parties. And so God calls Moses and says to them, I will be your God, and I will live among you if you obey my commands. But as people who had just witnessed his acts in Egypt, they were uh, filled with fear, and they wondered, how can this holy and mighty God live in our midst? So here we see that God calls Moses and gives him specific instructions for the creation of a tabernacle. In Exodus 25, verses 1 and then 8 through 9, we read, Tell the Israelites, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose hearts prompt them to give. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. You see, in Hebrew, the word tabernacle literally means to dwell or the dwelling place. And for the Israelites, the tabernacle was the physical dwelling place of God on earth. It was also this visible sign that God's presence was among the people. That the, 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 the presence he promised actually was there, the promise of the covenant. It was also referred to as, as a sanctuary. I know you all talk about this often as South Run, but it was a sanctuary, this holy and set-apart place. And throughout their time in the wilderness, the tabernacle actually moved with the people, and it served as a space where God communed with them. It was also the, the center of, of communication, of atonement, and of worship. In a sense, it was where the human-divine relationship was restored. In Exodus 29, we see that this was God's purpose all along for liberating the people. In Exodus 29, God says to Moses, I will dwell among the Israelites, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. You see, we see that God liberates the people not just uh, for freedom, but for restored relationships. He says that I might dwell among them. 
So throughout the book of Exodus and into Leviticus, those confusing books of the Bible, what we actually see is that God in his grace is defining the means and the terms by which the people could return back into his holy presence. And despite the up and down nature of the people's obedience, which was their half of the covenant, at the end of Exodus in chapter 40, we see this climactic event where God chooses to dwell among the people. In chapter 40, verse 35, in the last chapter, we read how the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And we see this happen again, the glory of the Lord filling a place, over 400 years later in Solomon's temple. When, uh, uh, whereas the tabernacle was this temporary portable space of worship, uh, the temple, Solomon intended to be a, a permanent dwelling place for the Lord among the people. A place where people could be assured and reminded that the Lord's presence was with them. But then again, something happens. It's a common theme throughout the story. In 586, Babylon, which was one of the largest empires at the time, it attacked and completely destroyed both Jerusalem and the temple. And what we see is that the people are taken out into what is known as, as the Babylonian captivity. For years, this shouldn't have come as a surprise, because for years, God had been sending prophets to the people, warning, warning of this judgment. Jeremiah, who was known as the weeping prophet, he prophesied clearly about the destruction of both Jerusalem and the temple because of Israel's idolatry, their social injustice, and their religious hypocrisy. Yet they refused to repent. Instead of humbly and reverently coming before God and honoring his presence among them, they dishonored and offended God through their wickedness and their disobedience. And as a result, their judgment was the loss of his presence. And as they lived in exile, the people underwent this existential crisis. Not only did they lose their their home and their culture, and many of them family members and friends in the violence, but they also had feelings of of forsakenness and isolation and hopelessness as they wondered and they looked at the temple destroyed and wondered, where is God? The temple is destroyed. Where is God? But God, in his faithfulness, had not abandoned them completely. He continued to speak through the prophets and, and promised that a day would come when he would restore the people into right relationship with him again. He promised of of a coming day where a new temple would would come, a a permanent place where he would dwell with his people. We see this promise throughout the exilic prophets, a, a space where heaven and earth would meet again and people could once again come into his direct presence. And you see, slowly the people returned to the land, Uh, And with their return, they waited for the Lord to fulfill this promise, that he would be with them again. But for 400 years after the prophets, God was silent. But then an angel of the Lord appeared to a virgin named Mary and told her she would conceive a son. And as the gospel writer Matthew states in chapter 1, he says all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
John describes it this way in his gospel. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And you see, this word is significant. John didn't choose it by accident. This, John is saying the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And if that was too subtle, in chapter 2, he goes on to share the story of how Jesus cleared the temple. And in verses 19 through 21, when the priests approach Jesus and ask him about his authority, his response is this, destroy the temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. You see, John, along with other gospel writers, is making the very clear statement that Jesus is the incarnate presence of God on earth. That through the person of Jesus, God walks with us once again. And like the temple in the Old Testament, the gospel writers make the very clear points that Jesus, as the new temple, should be the center of atonement, of worship, and of communication with God. And through the life of Jesus on earth, we see what it is for God to walk with us and for us to be in his presence again. We see people being healed. We see physical needs being met. We see relationships being restored through forgiveness. We see the freedom and transformation that comes through, through forgiveness and grace, even to the worst of sinners. You see, when God walked the earth as Jesus, he gave us a glimpse of the world as it should be and the world as it one day would be. But then he was crucified. And for three anguished days, his followers, in fear and confusion, they wondered, where is God? But as we know, death could not hold him. And on the third day, he rose again and appeared to his disciples. Uh, but this time, he also brought news of a gift. He told his disciples not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what he, happened, what he promised happened. In Acts, we see how God's Spirit flooded the church. Uh, we see how the very presence of God came to dwell not only among his people, but in his people. In Ephesians 2, Paul describes this profound new reality in an incredible way. He says to the people, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. You see, with Christ as the cornerstone, the body of believers forms the new and final temple of God. Both individually and collectively, we as the church house God's presence on earth. You see, and somehow in God's great mystery, he, he came and took on our flesh and dwelt among us. 
But after his death and resurrection and ascension, he didn't leave us behind. No, he came and he dwelt in us through his spirit. So as the church, we are now the temple of God. And with, the, with this reality comes a very profound privilege, but also, also responsibility. As God's people, filled with his spirit, he has chosen us to carry on Christ's work. This work of reconciliation and healing and redemption in the world. And I've seen this done. I, I've seen what it's like for people, God's people, to submit to his spirit and say, God, use us. In the aftermath of the Beirut explosion, I actually arrived 10 days after the explosion. And in the aftermath of the explosion, one of our church partners, they, they decided to go out in the streets and set up a tent. They said, we want to, uh, people were on the streets clearing up the debris of their homes and their businesses. And so this church said, we want to be there. We want to offer food uh, and water, coffee, and just prayers for people passing by. Uh, a woman, Nor, happened to be walking by at this time. She, uh, her home had been severely damaged, and she was still in, in the shock of everything, uh, the trauma of everything. And she talked about how in her rage and sadness, she was walking up and down the street, wrestling with God and asking, how can this happen? Especially because she was a, a single mother with four sons, one who had autism, and she just didn't know what would come next. She was crippled with fear and uncertainty. But then she saw the tent and, and asked for free coffee. Who doesn't want free coffee? And one of the women from the church, she, uh, Rula, she, she sensed her troubles and she asked her to sit down and, and just to talk for a while and to listen. And from that day on, Rula and the church, they walked alongside her in her recovery. They did this through helping her rehabilitate and rebuild her home. They supported her with food vouchers. And they formed very deep personal relationships with her that was a vital social support for both her and her son at home. A few months later, uh, she shared about the impact the church had on her. She said, are there really people like this in the world? When I am around them, I feel the most wonderful sense of peace. Just knowing some people have such hope inside of them and that they are willing to help strangers without anything in return. I always ask myself why they're on my way and are helping me like this. I thank God because he placed her in my path. I was walking in Beirut and crying and thinking out loud. I was wrestling with God and worrying all the time. There was no life anymore. Then Rula and the church came and gave us life. Friends, through the darkness in Lebanon the past year, it's been really incredible to see the ways that the, the local church has stepped up to be light to those around them. You see, believers fueled by God's spirit have, have stepped up in practical ways to live out the faith that they proclaim. But I've also seen this done here. Since 2015, I, I've witnessed how this church has, has let God's spirit work through you to serve those around you. Uh, I've watched you faithfully serve the children and the families and the teachers of Saratoga. I've gone with you to serve children and migrant families on the eastern shore. I've also known personally how your giving has supported churches and missionaries across the world. And I've seen how you've loved and cared for one another in both the joys and the sorrows of life. 
So friends, God moves and works beyond us in ways we can't imagine. In Lebanon, I've heard stories about how God works in dreams and visions and miracles. But in his infinite wisdom, he has also chosen to work through us. As a church of Christ filled with his spirit, he has invited and empowered us to be his presence on earth. So when you look around and we see the suffering around us, when we notice the pain of the world and our neighbors, and when we see people struggling and overcome by grief and hopelessness, and we hear them cry out, where is God? May it be said of us, we know where God is. He is here with us. I've seen him in his church. Father, we come before you with, with deep praise and adoration. And God, this morning, we thank you for the gift of your spirit. God, thank you for, for not leaving us, but giving us your eternal spirit so that we might always know, God, that you are here with us. And God, thank you that as, as believers, whenever we ask ourselves, where is God? Where are you? That we can come before our brothers and sisters in Christ and know that you are here with us, God. God, thank you for that gift. But God, also remind us of the, the profound responsibility it is to bear your name and your spirit. God, we are your face. We are your temple on earth. May we remember that when people come to our presence, they come to your presence. God, help us to die to our spirit and ourselves so that we may be filled by your Holy Spirit and take seriously the call, God, to be your presence on earth. We ask that you work through us, God, to bring about justice and reconciliation, to meet the needs of those around us, God, so that all people can see in, in the church community and the, the people that we impact, God, they may see glimpses of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Father, we love you and we praise you, and you ask that your spirit comes and fills this room and fills these people, that we may go out, God, to be your presence on earth. We love you, Father, and we pray this in the great name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.